Okay, good morning, Chapel family. I just want to welcome you to our first uh, live uh, broadcast from the Chapel building. Uh, We're not sure how long we're going to have to uh, function in this way, but uh, uh, Mark and Don have been very gracious in getting things set up so that we can have just hopefully what will be a good broadcast that you'll be able to hear everything clearly. Um, My wife and I moved here 30 years ago this month, and... uh, This is, I think, by far one of the most interesting seasons that we've experienced as a pastor and his wife in our community, along with the pastoral team. Uh, We're grateful to God for the years he's given us, uh, but we understand that these are times of deep concern and uh, difficulty for many people. So the promise I want to leave you with is the words of Christ, so do not fear, for I am with you. I think one of the things we just need to center ourselves upon is the presence of God in our lives. Uh, As far as a couple items of kind of housekeeping, uh, if there are any prayer requests, those can be forwarded to the church email address, and uh, Terry will be sure to get them sent out to everyone. If there are any particular needs related to uh, the need of food or medication, we have a number of people in the church family that have volunteered to make that available. So we want to encourage you, If those needs exist, make sure you reach out to us via email through Terry Franz, and uh, we'll make sure that all of the needs that are present uh, get met. A number of people have volunteered, and we're going to be able to uh, take care of that. So we're going to go into this text, uh, obviously the first time that we're doing this, and just trust that God's guidance and his hand will rest upon us. I want to lead us in prayer before we begin the sermon. Father, we are thankful this morning that we can come into your presence and we can even do it virtually like we are right now. We trust that your word uh, will work in very powerful ways. We know that it is not limited by our circumstances. And Holy Spirit, we know that you are not limited by our circumstances. So we trust that you will work through your word as it goes forth, that you will make it clear, you will make it effective and life-changing. And uh, God, for those of us as a church family today that need to hear from you, that need uh, that word of comfort, I pray that the message of this text as a whole uh, will speak deeply to our hearts uh, in a very life-transforming way. So God, we, we just say this morning, we trust you to meet us where we are in the circumstances that we face today, and that you will, in this circumstance, minister to us and meet our needs in a very beautiful way. For those in our church family that are struggling with health needs, uh, with various physical difficulties, some I know, God, with financial difficulties in this circumstance, I pray that you would put on the hearts of those who are able to meet those needs, and that, uh, God, just in a very beautiful way, uh, we will see your hand at work in circumstances that we would never choose, uh, that you would be glorified in ways that we could never imagine. So bless us now as we look at your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what what we want you to do this morning is turn in your Bibles to Genesis 13. Uh, For the sake of continuity through this season, we're going to continue our series through the book of Genesis, at least for the near term. So I want you to turn to Genesis 13, and uh, we're going to read this passage in uh, just a few minutes. Okay, so by way of introduction, I think most of us have observed and experienced situations where money uh, or possessions have divided families, ruined relationships, and caused deep-seated and sometimes lifelong resentments. 
Sadly, money gets the blame for this, but should not. In fact, the Word of God tells us that it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. A desire for a little more can lead to very hurtful and dangerous behavior. It happens in the settling of family estates. It happens in the dividing of personal effects. Uh, It happens in divorces. It happens in untying untying, uh, business partnerships. In many settings, all of us have probably seen along the road of our lives uh, times when things, possessions, money has brought great uh, division. And so the question I want to ask this morning is how do we avoid this common catastrophe? How do we keep from being caught up in the trouble that comes along with the possession of material things. And I'm going to share with you a word this morning that is a a rather big word, and I was talking with a friend about it this week, and they said you should really define that word for people. So the word I want to share with you this morning is the word, we overcome the common struggle and catastrophe related to possessions by being magnanimous. Okay, now that's a, that's a big word. It's got more than two syllables. So it's something that most of us need to have a de- definition for. So let me give you this simple definition. To be magnanimous is to be very generous or forgiving, especially towards a rival. Someone who has wronged you. It means to be noble and large-hearted, especially in the face of struggle. It's similar to generosity, but it's not simply generosity, okay? If I, if I uh, have an abundance and I give it to you as a friend, I'm not going to say that I'm being magnanimous towards you, but I am being generous towards you. Being magnanimous is being generous, but on steroids is the best way that I can describe it. It's a, it's a heightened and intense uh, season of generosity, usually or typically towards someone who is lesser or has taken advantage of you. So I want to read through Genesis 13 for you real quickly, and then we'll uh, work our way through this text. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock, silver, and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place, until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had earlier been, and where he had built his first altar. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot was moving about with Abram, and also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine. For we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of Jordan toward Zoar was well watered like the garden of God, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan and set out toward the east. 
The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents toward Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. I'll come back to verse 14 in just a few minutes. So this text gives us, first of all, a setting. Abraham coming back to the land with Lot. It gives us an inciting incident that there's quarreling amongst the people. And then it gives us the resolution of the conflict. So let's look quickly at the setting that is exposed in verses 1 to 4. It tells us that Abraham has returned from the land of Egypt. And the text says that he is very wealthy. Uh, in the American uh, context, we would say that Abraham was loaded, okay? He, people knew when they saw Abraham and all that he had that he had become very wealthy under the hand and blessing of God. We also notice in the text of verse 4 that he comes back to the place that's called Bethel. That means house of God. And there it says, he calls upon the name of the Lord. And as you study the life of Abraham, one of the things that you're going to find to be a common experience on the part of Abraham is that he is regularly calling upon the name of the Lord. To call upon the name of the Lord means something like this. It means to center your life around a basic life principle or a basic life influence. Okay, so Abraham, when he gets there, he, he, he looks at God realizes what he's been through in Egypt. Through his failure, he has been preserved. His heart is filled with a great degree of gratitude towards God for his preservation in spite of the poor decision-making that Abraham had exhibited. Now, verse 5 then says, now Lot. Okay, so the text is going to indicate this, the, 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 the influence or effect of Lot in the experience of Abraham. So he is still kind of in the orb of Abraham's life. And what, it, what the text tells us is that Lot also had herds and flocks and gold and silver. He, he had experienced prosperity because of his relationship with Abraham. And so that becomes an important part of setting the scene for this text. So Abraham and Lot have both come back to the land that God had called them to, particularly called Abraham to, and they both have increased abundantly in possessions, and that's going to lead to what we call the inciting incident. So from the first part, here's the thing that we learn. God's people may enjoy prosperity, but the truth is that when prosperity comes in our lives, it can also be a cause of strife. So we always need to realize that possessions have a, a stamp marked on them. And the stamp says this, handle with care. Because when possessions are handled improperly, they can also, also, often lead to seasons of division and strife. And that is, in fact, what happens in this text. So there, everything's increasing. Verses 6 to 7 give us the, inc the inciting incident, the tension that rises in the text. They both had flocks and herds. They both prospered. And verse 6 says that the land could not support them while they stayed together. Okay? And there, what you'll find is there's an, there are these quarrels that are emerging between Abraham's herders. They were uh, keepers of sheep and Lot's herders. Okay? It's, it's likely that the struggle was over a well and over green grass. Okay, because in the agrarian culture, those would be very important commodities. So they, they become kind of the, the inciting incident. There's quarreling that arises. And the idea of quarreling simply means this, 
claim and counterclaim. Okay, if you've raised children, you've been in the toddler zone lately, you know what claim counterclaim is all about. It's mine. I had it first, okay? We understand those types of tensions that are not simply common to toddlers, that are common to all adults. We all wrestle with seasons like this. And I think we can easily identify with the nature of the inciting incident that's present. And what it does, it begins to create a crisis between Abraham and Lot. And it's a crisis that Abraham is going to strive to resolve immediately. He's not going to let this tension tear things apart. So the question that I want you to think about is, what will this season of tension expose in Abraham's life? What will we learn about him from this tension that is rising? Verses 8 to 9, I think, begin to help us to understand Abraham's true heart. Now, we know that his heart is imperfect, but we also know that his heart is full of faith and struggle. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds like most of our lives. We go through seasons of strong faith. We also know what it is to trip and stumble over our own pride, over our own greed, over those types of natural tendencies. In this context, Abraham has come back from Egypt having failed miserably and yet been blessed by God magnificently. His heart has been affected by this undeserved blessing of God, by this grace from God. And so as Abraham resolves the conflict, I want you to listen to what he says. And the best way I can do this, I think, is just to read this text, verse 8. So in this conflict, Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. We're in relationship. Is not the whole land before you? Now, it's interesting that as, as Abraham begins to approach this circumstance with Lot, and remember, Lot's a tag on in this story. He's not the heir of Abraham. He's the nephew of Abraham. And he's kind of been thus far tagging along in the story. It would be very reasonable for Abraham to go to Lot and say, Hey, Lot, we've kind of come to a point where you need to go. Your presence has become a Convenience, you've been richly blessed. I just, it's going to be best if you just get out of the picture of my life. But that's not, Abraham doesn't take the easy way out. He doesn't take the convenient way out. He takes what we're calling this morning the magnanimous way out. The generous on steroids way out of this conflict. And what he says is his aim. He says, let there be no quarreling amongst us. His gratitude is driving a heart of generosity towards someone who we're going to find out is not very deserving of it. And he looks at Lot and he says, is not the whole land before you in verse 9? And he says simply to Lot, he says, hey Lot, there it is, the whole picture of God's blessing. You pick what you want, I'll take what's left over. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you choose what's to the left, I'll go to the right. That's an incredibly generous perspective on the part of Abraham because the truth is God had promised it to him not to lie but out of a heart of gratitude Abraham responds in a very sweet and beautiful way and I don't know about most of you but uh, I struggle with being selfish when it comes to dessert being served 
Like the size of the piece of pie matters to me, okay? Uh, I, I have no problem choosing what's best for me. And that's not what you find in Abraham. So I want to look at three lessons that emerge out of this conflict. And Abraham's saying to Lot, Lot, you, you choose what you want. And I'll settle for what's left over. So what are the lessons that kind of emerge out of this text? Number one, strife is settled by the magnanimous actions of those who live by faith. By the, the powerful generosity towards an undeserving person. That's how a believer resolves seasons of strife. They don't get what they can out of circumstances. Why? Because they know they, their back is covered by God. They've been richly blessed by God. And I think as you, as, you, as you look at this story, you know that Abraham's magnanimous behavior is, is being generated by a heart that has learned God's favor in the school of grace, right? When he's in Egypt, Abraham is struggling with incredibly selfish behavior. But as he comes back and realizes that God has so incredibly blessed him, even in a season of sinfulness in his life, Abraham is, is in some way overwhelmed by the favor and grace of God. He knows that he can't take credit for what he has, so therefore he doesn't cling to it. In Egypt, he had put it all at risk. In Egypt, God had put it all back in his hands and prospered him even more. Abraham had learned his identity in Egypt. He learned that he was a blessed child of God, a man who had experienced undeserved favor. And we often sing as a church a song that says, This is my confidence. You have never failed me yet. And I think this is provoking the heart of Abraham. There is a deep confidence in God that Abraham has learned. That God, in spite of his sinfulness, fully had his back. And was going to protect him and preserve him and fulfill his promises towards him. He could be magnanimous because he knew that everything around him belonged to God. It was given and promised by God. He did not need to cling to or grasp at God's promises. He needed to rest in them. He needed to own them simply by faith because he knew that it all belonged to God. And I think one of the principles that emerges here in relationship to Abraham's experience, this heart of gratitude before God inoculates him to the infection or virus of greed. Right? He feels deep gratitude towards God. Therefore, he's not clinging in a toddlerish kind of way. It's mine. Go get your own. He is generous because he knows that the blessings had come from God. And the other thing I, I want to observe is this. this. This understanding of God's blessing in his life had led Abraham to become a man who was free from the constraints of material possessions. Does that make sense? He experienced freedom from what normally tends to bind us and, and bring out the worst in us. In the gospel, Christian generosity is driven by knowing that you are richly blessed and graced by God. Here's the way Paul said it. Freely you have received. Freely give. Okay, that there is something that transpires in the heart of a forgiven sinner that causes us, when we're conscious of God's grace, to be generous. That's what amazing grace does to you. It fills you so much that you can't cling on to things. 
but you're willing to give them up freely to settle strife and struggle in the realm of your life. So that's Abraham. The second thing we see is Lot in verse 10, when Lot responds to Abraham's invitation. In verse 10 it says, after Abraham says, Lot, look, if you choose what's to the left, I'll go to the, or to the left, I'll go to the right. If you choose what's to the right, I'll go to the left. I'm totally fine with that. Notice what Lot's response is. He looked around and saw the whole plain of Jordan toward Zoar. He saw that it was well watered like the garden of God, which is a reflection back to Genesis 2 and 3, all right, where we have Adam and Eve in the garden of God. And the word that's used to describe that garden is the word paradise. And so Lot looks... He sees things that remind him of the, of, the, of the fabled Garden of Eden. And when he sees it, he finds it irresistible. And he chooses the best part for himself. And I think the principle that emerges here is this. Those who walk by sight can be deceived. If I simply go by what's in front of me and look at the entailments of, of, of things that I want and don't remember the broader principles and teachings of God's word. I am bound to make a mistake in my decision making. And Lot in this context walks by sight but is in fact deceived. What he saw was irresistible for his greedy heart and without hesitation he makes a decision. The thing you'll notice about Lot is Lot is never stopping and saying, I wonder what God wants. Lot's first thought seems to always be what's best for me and mine. And I think we could say he's actually not even thinking about his. He's thinking about himself. Because you'll notice in this decision that he is self-gratifying. Secondly, he is God-ignoring. So verse 12 says, Abraham lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents toward Sodom. And then parenthetically, the text says this. It says, now the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. Now, what that tells you is that the city of Sodom in the ancient times had a reputation. Abraham knew the reputation, and it is very likely that Lot knew the, repu or the reputation. However, Lot is blinded by his desire for a little bit more. Already loaded. He's blinded by his desire for a little bit more. Why? Because possessions can never bring true satisfaction to your life. The more you have, the more you will find that you want if you make them the source of your security and satisfaction. Lot makes a choice that is God ignoring. What he saw was irresistible in spite of the inherent risks that are present. He never saw the red light flashing on the dashboard of his life. And he chose what looked best, blinded by greed, but he did not choose what actually was best. So there are times that I may choose what is best, but may not actually be best. I want you to think about that. Lot looked, he assessed, this is the best, I'm going to choose it for myself, which essentially is saying what? Abraham, I don't care about you. And his greedy heart, his God-ignoring heart, his self-gratifying heart is exposed. The truth is that good business decisions 
may not always be wise decisions. In other words, when I always analyze by what's best for me rather than what will glorify God, I am, I am in a dangerous zone as far as my decision-making and choices are concerned. Lot apparently had no concern for the spiritual impact of this decision on his family. His passions and desires led him in this context to compromise, and his true heart is exposed. Martin Luther from the era of the Protestant Reformation, made this observation on this text. He said, instead of seeing the trouble, Lot fancied that he was living in paradise and nearly plunged his family into the depths of hell. He went where he knew he shouldn't go because he couldn't resist the power and draw and attraction of a little bit more. Folks, we need to remember that choices large and small impact our lives. Therefore, choose wisely. Be people, of, uh, uh, be, be people of principle. What I find is that people often protest, I can do what I want. I can make my own decisions. And the answer and the truth is, yes, you can. But you cannot control the outcome of those decisions. So yes, I can freely make my choices. But I can't freely control the results or consequences of my choices, particularly in relationship to their impact on my life and on my family's life. The truth is that choices, large and small, shape and impact our lives. Therefore, as believers, we need to be people that get in the presence of God, like Abraham did. He regularly sought God out. There's, there are times along the way in his life we're going to see that he didn't, and the results are tragic. But on a fairly regular basis, you find Abraham coming back into the presence of God. With Lot, you don't see that. And as a result, you see a life that in many ways is falling apart. In verses 14 through 18, we find the kind of the overflow of this text. All right, so once that happens, uh, Lot makes his choice selfish, moves to where he wants to go. It says in verse 14, and it's almost like God, all right, Lot's gone. And, and God comes in front of Abraham and says, Abraham, listen to me. Listen to me. I want you to listen to this. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had departed from him, look around from where you are. To the north, to the south, to the east and west. Abraham, to all points of the compass from where you're standing, which is exactly where Lot made his choices from. I want you to notice what God says to him. He says, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. So here's, here's to me what's amazing about this text. So Abraham says to Lot, Lot, whatever you want. Lot, go, go choose what you want. Lot sees the best, chooses the best for himself, and off he goes. And God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I have a clarification for you. He says, I want you to look. Look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. And what does he say to him? He says, it's all yours. Now, that seems contrary to fact, right? Because Lot looked and chose the portion he wanted, I believe in southwest, okay? And God says, Abraham, look southwest. Yes, Lot chose it, but it belongs to you. So, so here's what you find. God blesses the generous. 
Abraham responds to this season of strife in a magnanimous way, in a gracious way towards someone that's undeserving. And Lot takes the best. God says, Abraham, look at the best. Even though Lot has chosen it, it's still yours. And I love the, I love the, the turnaround of that, of that account. So God blesses the generous. This is the resolution to the story. Abraham acts by faith and meets God face to face. And from God he gets two things. He gets a reaffirmation that Abraham, what you have even given to Lot temporarily, is in fact temporary. Because it all belongs to you by virtue of my promise. Abraham is left with less fertile land in the immediate. But he has assurance from God himself. A lot of times we struggle to see this, don't we? We're tending to look at what we have and how it falls short of our expectations. God is saying, Abraham, you got the less fertile land, but you got it all in me. And that's a beautiful, beautiful statement. I think what God is saying to Abraham is this. Abraham, you do not need to fight for what God has promised to give. And that's what causes a Christian in the context of conflict to be freer and more open. We don't need to fight for what God has promised. We just need to sit back by faith and say, it all belongs to me, not because I deserve it, but God by his grace has promised me such incredible blessings. And so Abraham sits back and he gets a reaffirmation from God, but he also gets an intensification, right? Because verse 17, it's a very interesting passage of scripture in relationship to land. It says, God says, Abraham, go and walk through the length and breadth of the land. That would include the portion that went to Lot. Abraham, I want you to literally walk through the land. From the east to the west, from the north to the south, for I am giving it to you. Now, the word speaks forward. Okay, Abraham, yes, right now it looks like you got the lesser part, but it all belongs to you. And he tells him, Abraham, I want you to go walk through the land. And the idea of that is, if you think of the word like claiming something, Right? That's what Abraham is doing. He's walking through the land, and that walk through the land indicates that he is the owner apparent of it. It's his to freely live in. God's saying, Abraham, in spite of what's happened, my promise still stands. And I am still faithful to my word. Everything I promise to you is yes and amen. That's a powerful story, isn't it? It looks like in his magnanimous behavior, he's giving something up. But in reality, he's getting everything that God had promised him. May God give us such eyes of faith. In walking through it, it's symbolic of claiming it, of stating ownership. It's as good as his. And I think this is a story that affirms a very important biblical principle. And I think the principle is this. It's not... I want it and get it by faith. Okay, there's a difference. Because in a lot of prosperity teaching is, if you want something, name it and claim it. If you want it, go get it. It's not what Abraham's doing here. It's not, I want it and get it by faith. It's, I have promised it to you, Abraham. Live in light of my promise. Live as if it is all yours, because in fact it is. 
So it's not that I go, I want it and I go get it by faith. It's God promised it and I rest in that by faith. Okay? It's a call to trust God to do the good thing in your life. So Abraham gets an intensification of this promise from God. And then verses 4 to 18 uh, is, 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 a, is a very... It's very interesting to note what happens in 4 and 18. In verse 4, Abraham calls upon the name of the Lord. And in verse 18, at the end of this account, so Abraham settles into the place that God has called him to. And it says, there he built an altar to the Lord. What is he doing? He's centering his life on the promise and presence of God in a season of conflict and strife and struggle and apparent loss. Not real loss, not actual loss. Why? God said, Abraham, go walk. It's all yours. But in the season of apparent loss, what does Abraham do? He doesn't complain. He builds an altar to God. He erects a place where he can acknowledge God's presence in his life. That's what a person of faith does. Not perfectly. We never do it perfectly. So what are the, just the simple applications. Number one. The story of Abraham, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, is written for our encouragement upon whom the end of the ages have come. This story is recorded in Scripture so that I can learn something about how I respond to strife and conflict in my life. And I can look at the response of Lot and see a selfish bent, a selfish lean, very selfish. But in Abraham, I see a magnanimous response. I see a man who is free from the love of money in the settlement of his estate. He's not clinging. He's not holding on. He's not trying to get more. So I want to say this to us as a church family. Beware of greed when you prosper. When benefits come into your life, don't think like Lot. Oh, it's great. It's mine. Be like Abraham who said, if you need it, Go take it. Be generous. Be magnanimous in such incredibly difficult context. If you, if you are meeting with God on a regular basis, you will find that your heart is increasingly freed from the entrapments of material things. That's why Paul says in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 6, he says to Timothy, Timothy, warn those who have a lot. He doesn't condemn them for having it. He doesn't tell them to shed all of it. But he says, tell them to be careful about thinking that when you have abundance, that life comes down to abundance, that when the abundance comes, that's what life's about. It's not. It is at best temporary. And we need to remember that so that we stay centered on God. All right? Secondly, so follow the example of Abraham. Secondly, the true blessings of life are never found in material things. Okay, that's why the prosperity gospel is a sham gospel, a false gospel. It says that the ultimate things are to be had in the temporal realm. That is never true. The ultimate thing is God himself, the hope of a future with him. It's why Jesus said to his disciples, I am going, but I am going to prepare a place for you. I don't want you to be tied to the temporal realm. I don't want you to be clinging to the temporal realm. I want you to be free from it so that you can be generous with it till the day that you come home to the true promised land and the paradise of God. Isn't that beautiful? 
If I think that material things are the most important thing, when I hit circumstances like what we're going through right now as a nation, with everything financial up in the air and, and, and up to large question, many people experiencing large portions of their wealth wiped out the threat of sickness. If I approach those circumstances from a temporal perspective, here's what I'll focus on. I need to stay healthy. I need to find a way to get more. It's not how God calls us to live. He calls us to be people of faith who, who have a pronounced degree of trust in him that is centering their lives on things that last, not on temporal things. I could get the COVID virus. The COVID virus could take my life. But I can't live in fear of that. I can't live in the bondage that I might lose what's temporal. Why? Because I have an eternal promise from God. And if my uh, retirement accounts are decimated, which they largely have been recently, is that the end of joy in life? The answer is, if that is my life, yes. Yes. But if Christ is my life, the best is yet to come. I feel bad for those of us that sometimes have the heart of Lot, that think it's all about what we see now, and we're constantly choosing the best for ourselves because spiritually we're toddlers we're fighting we're tit for tat we're giving and taking we're quarreling right claim and counterclaim claim counterclaim that's what happens if you find that to be prevalent in your heart ask yourself a question am i really centered on god to the degree that i believe that i am and let god do a work of centering your heart on his grace and on his blessing. Abraham's perspective for us is crucial. And I think it's laid out for, in Hebrew, for us in Hebrews 11, verse 8. The text says, By faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land. God called him to go there. He got there. What was his attitude when he got there? Here's what it says. He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. Why? Here's what the text says. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose builder and architect is God. So even though he got the temporal blessing of he was loaded, as the text says at the beginning, he, Abraham never saw himself that way. He never saw his life merely from the temporal perspective. In fact, it says that when he was there, he, he, he set up tents because he was looking forward to a city that has foundations. He set up temporary dwellings because he knew that his life here was temporary. But he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God himself. That's freedom. That's true freedom. The reason Abraham could be generous with this stuff is because when he got to the promised land, he didn't look at his family and say, this is it. Because they would have probably looked at him and said, this arid desert land is it? No. It's the place where God wants us to be now. It's, it's part of his blessing. It is not the fullness of it. That's a level of freedom that I hope that we can go on to attain that will change how we look at our current circumstance today. The last thing is this, I, the contrast of Abraham's Godward perspective to Lot's earthbound perspective. 
I hope we go away from a text like this saying, you know what, Abraham or Lot was one-dimensional. All he could see was the immediate. And when that's your perspective, you will fight for the immediate. When it comes to settling estates, you'll be in there fighting for your rights and what's yours. This text calls us to something different. It's there to show us the perspective of the man of faith who when he faced a season of conflict, dealing with a man who was a little bit of a rascal, he could be magnanimous. He could be generous to someone who was below him and who had intentions toward him that were not, clearly, were not good. And yet Abraham can say, you know what, Lot? Take what you need. That's the heart I want before God. A heart that is free from the entailments of the temporal realm. A heart that is free to honor and glorify God. A heart that is free in the circumstances that we face right now to live a generous life. To seek to meet the needs of those around us that are, that are hurting. Because we know that ultimately it all belongs to God. And when I know that, the shackles of material things are broken. And freedom to be generous to others begins to emerge in our hearts as a passion. Lot's passion, material things. Abraham's passion, God himself, which deeply affected his life in a very practical way. One thought I want to close with is this. As I thought of this text and I thought of the Jesus implications of it, how does this text point forward to Jesus? I think in this text, Abraham is the Jesus-like person towards an undeserving sinner like Lot. He freely gives to someone who doesn't deserve. And in that action, he shows me what Jesus looks like from the pages of the Old Testament. May God help us to be centered on God himself, loving the gospel that God has given to us through his precious son, Jesus Christ, listening to the spirit of God as he prompts us toward generous action, as he seeks to break the grip that we tend to have on temporal things and seeks to free us to become liberated children of God who aren't clinging to the temporal realm because we know that it all belongs to us through God's grace. So I don't have to have it. I can instead freely use it to live a life that glorifies God and to live a life that exemplifies Jesus Christ to the world in which he has called me to live. Father, I pray that your word this morning will increasingly become clear to our hearts as we meditate on it. As we think on Abraham's life, knowing that he is held up for us as an example, not because he is stellar, but because he is just like us. Lord, as I read Abraham's life, I find hope for my life. And I pray that as a church family, we will find that hope today uh, in a way that changes us tomorrow. By your grace and for your glory. I pray your blessing over this church family and over our community, over our country, over the world, God. I pray uh, your blessing on the missionaries that are working in extremely difficult places today. Show them abundant favor. God, help them, help us each to realize that the best is, in fact, yet to come. And we claim that by faith, and it changes how we live now. Because we are people of great, incredible, incomprehensible promises. So Jesus, let your light shine through us. Holy Spirit, prompt us, convict us, show us how we can meet needs around us in a way that will exalt and glorify our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.
and for his glory. Amen.